This is an ABC podcast. Have you ever thought about cheating if you're a student, not in your relationship? That's a whole other thing. But a whole heap of you aren't just thinking about cheating on exams and assignments. You're actually doing it. Cheating websites, billion-dollar global industry, and they've got unis really worried. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack. In a minute, we're going to be speaking with someone who's been investigating this murky world. You might be surprised by what he's found. Also coming up, explorers have found Australia's deepest cave, and you won't believe what happens next. Hack. History is calling us. Get onto the station. We want you to be on the train with us. If not now, when? On Triple Jack. Something really significant happened over the weekend. After years of talking, consulting, debate, the Prime Minister unveiled what he thinks should be the question that we're all asked in a referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. It hasn't been finalised and there's a long way to go. We still don't know when this vote will be or even what the voice to Parliament would look like. But it's definitely a step forward and it's got many First Nations people and others feeling hopeful that we could see some real action on this issue very soon. There's a lot to this. So if you're thinking, look, I'm not sure what this is about or even what's a referendum, it's all good because political reporter Claudia Long's got you covered. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. What you're hearing is the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It was issued back in 2017 after years of consultation and is the result of a historic meeting of hundreds of First Nations people at the First Nations National Constitutional Convention. It calls for meaningful and substantial constitutional change. We believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. The statement calls for three key things. Voice, treaty and truth. Right now, Australia is the only government in the Commonwealth to not have a treaty with the First Nations whose land it's on. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. A constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice is also known as the voice to parliament. The idea is that it would be a body that could provide advice to Parliament on policies that would have an impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Because it'll mean a change to the Constitution, we'll all be voting in a referendum, similar to how you went to the ballot box earlier this year to vote in the election. But this time, you'll be asked to say yes or no to a question like this. Do you support an alteration to the Constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, announced that proposed question over the weekend at Gama Festival in the NT on Yolngu Country. He's promised the Labor government will implement the Uluru Statement from the heart in full, which would also involve establishing a Makarrata Commission. The Commission would oversee a process of agreement-making between First Nations and governments, the treaty process, and ensure the true history of the land where we all live and the brutal impact of colonisation is told and acknowledged. Makarrata is a Yolngu word the process of coming together after a struggle. The Uluru Statement is a hand outstretched, a moving show of faith in Australian decency and Australian fairness from people who have been given every reason to forsake their hope in both. I am determined as a government, as a country, 
that we grasp that hand of healing. We repay that faith. We rise to the moment. So what is a voice to parliament? There's been a lot of misinformation spread about it, so it's understandable if you don't know off the top of your head. I do not believe what would in, in effect be a third chamber of parliament. No, a voice is not a third chamber of parliament. Here in Parliament House in Ngunnawal, Nambri, Canberra, we've got two houses of parliament. The lower house, called the House of Representatives, and the upper house, known as the Senate, where politicians vote on what should become law. A voice to parliament is like what it says in the name. It's not a third chamber. It's an advisory body. Essentially, it would provide an avenue for First Nations people to speak directly to politicians who are making decisions and hold them accountable. Minister for Indigenous Australians Linda Burney says... This has to belong to the Australian people. The government will pursue as much consensus as possible about um, how we go forward. We will not be rushed... The exact design and function of the voice will be left to Parliament to determine if the referendum succeeds. The last thing that we would want, uh, which we have seen in the past in terms of referendum, is a proposition or a question uh, that people can't uh, sign up to. And just on that, for a referendum to be successful, you need what's called a double majority. That's a majority of voters across the country and a majority of the states, not the territories. Sorry needing to say yes to the question we were talking about earlier. So, for example, say 51% of the country voted yes, but a majority of voters in four or more states voted no. The referendum wouldn't be successful. There are varying views on the voice among First Nations MPs in federal parliament. Green Senator and First Nations spokesperson Lydia Thorpe thinks a treaty should come before a voice. And I have always said that I'll work with this government to get it right um, and that we... You know, our priority should be black justice in this country. Our priority should be about saving lives today. The coalition opposition say they'd like to see more detail on what a voice to parliament will entail. So what's the timeline? With the federal government committed to implementing the Uluru Statement and the next election needing to happen by July 2025, it looks like a referendum would need to happen before then. And in the lead-up, there's going to be a lot to discuss and reflect on. Hack on Triple J. Claudia Long there with that update and we're getting your thoughts on this. I want to get a bit more information though, a bit more of a breakdown. Carly Williams is the ABC's National Indigenous Affairs correspondent. She's also a Kwandamooka woman and was at Gama over the weekend. Hey Carly, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks so much for having me. We've just heard about the Prime Minister's proposed referendum question that he's put out there. It's obviously a really big step forward. You've been at Gama. How was the reaction there? Gama is essentially a gathering of Indigenous leaders and organisations who meet with government delegates and corporate types to discuss First Nations issues and the politics of the day. So many folks at Gama were expecting some sort of announcement from the PM. Uh, And when he arrived in his wide brim hat and his RMs, there was a buzz in the air that something monumental was going to happen there in that red dirt uh, on the ceremonial ground. And and it was a historic announcement. Uh, There were emotions in the crowd. There were tears. Elders spoke afterwards saying how moved they were that they didn't think in their lifetime they would see a Prime Minister promise a referendum to recognise First Nations people in the Constitution. So it was emotional. And then some people I spoke to expected more. You know, one health worker I 
I had a yarn to, said she walked out because she expected the Prime Minister to announce a date and she was fuming that he didn't commit to a date. And there were some people who were probably after a bit more detail and that's um, what we're hearing a bit about now. There isn't that much detail at the moment about what this voice would look like, how it would work, those sorts of things. Is that a concern for some First Nations people as well? Yeah, so the Prime Minister will propose these three sentences be added to the Constitution, essentially implementing an Indigenous body, uh, which is called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. And he said it's not a third chamber, uh, but a body that will tell government what's working for Indigenous Australians and what's not working. But this draft wording of the question, this draft wording of the question is, is really all we know at this stage. But it feels like the road to referendum has already begun in a way. Uh, there are people asking, will we now see in these next steps big budget TV ads and, and you know, uh, magazine ads or whatever? Uh, will there be a proper education compa- campaign on this? Uh, so we can feel informed about constitutional change and, and what an Indigenous voice to Parliament might mean because I don't know about you, Dave, the Constitution is a dense document and I'm not completely across it. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm expecting that there would be some sort of educational campaign about what this actually means. But minds are also turning to what happens if there is a vote no campaign. Um, you know, you remember with the marriage equality vote, uh, there was a no vote no campaign. Unfortunately, some really ugly, bigoted views bubbled up on social media and beyond. And it just really wasn't a great time for some of our queer brothers and sisters in the LGBT community. So there are some worries that a no drive from non-Indigenous groups will hurt vulnerable groups like stolen generation survivors who've already suffered enough. Yeah, I can imagine there would be a lot of concern about how all this is going to play out in the months ahead. We still don't know when this referendum would take place, as you said. Is there any particular time frame that's being pushed by the people you've been speaking with? Yes, so Uluru statement advocates on the ground at Gama told me that the end of next year would be an ideal time to have this referendum. It gives people enough time to hit books, study up. What is it? What is it going to mean for us? Uh, like I said earlier, the constitution is a little bit eye glazing for some of us. Yeah. Um, it's a de- it's a dense document, and. Yeah, I feel like the country needs some time to get across this. And so that's what the Uluru Statement campaigners and advocates were saying. End of next year would be ideal. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that in the weeks and months ahead. Carly, there was some other big news that came through over the weekend. Really sad announcement that legendary First Nations musician, songwriter Archie Roach had died. Look, he was a huge figure. It's impossible to state just how much of an influence he was for so many people across the country and a real mentor for young First Nations artists. How was his passing marked at Gama? Well, Gama this year has been significant for a number of reasons, but I think when news broke that Uncle Archie Roach had passed away, people were walking around with tears in their eyes. And it, it was so, so sad and really quite incredible that it had happened at this particular weekend. Uh, Archie Roach was a stolen generation survivor. Because of that trauma, he battled alcoholism for a number of years. Um, I believe he was uh, living on the streets during some years in his teens. But his music helped soothe. And many attendees at 
Gama Festival share those tragic experiences with Uncle Archie. So there was a bit of shock and then there was grief and, you know, groups sitting around the campfires reflecting on Archie's profound legacy an incredible contribution really to First Nations resilience and and strength. Yeah, it's certainly a passing that's been felt right across the country and we're still seeing so many beautiful tributes come through for Archie Roach. ABC reporter Carly Williams, thank you very much for filling us in. Appreciate you jumping on Hack. Anytime. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, we're going to have all the updates on this story in the months ahead. We'll make sure you know what's happening. Hack. There are thousands, I would estimate probably hundreds of thousands, of these cheating websites. On Triple J. Who's the cheater? Come on, fess up. I'm not talking about your relationships. I'm talking about cheating on exams in school, at uni. Have you done it? Are you ashamed? Are you proud of what you did? Because since the pandemic changed the way that we study and sit tests, there has been a boom in cheating websites. It's ridiculous how much they've grown in popularity. They'll often call themselves study aids, and those who run them and even the students who pay to use them often deny that it is cheating. They've got other ways of describing it. But there's no doubt that heaps of Aussie students are getting into this. Maybe you're one of them. There's no judgment. Make sure you let me know if you want to tell me about your experience. 0439 757 555. I've actually got heaps of messages coming through already. Thanks so much for being brave enough to talk about it. Someone says, anonymous for obvious reasons. I used a cheating website for an assignment last semester because my lecturers were awful at teaching. I used the site as a way to teach myself. I want to find out a bit more about what's going on here. Mario Christodoulou is an investigative journalist. He works for the ABC's background briefing and he's been exploring this work of cheating websites for weeks and he's here with us now to tell us what it's all about. Hey Mario, thanks for coming on Hack. No worries, thanks for having me. So firstly, what are these cheating websites? Like I'm really interested to know what they are and how they work. So during the pandemic, uh, basically when students uh, were taken off campuses, they started to study and do their exams online, these websites really gained in popularity. So some of the more sophisticated ones, the way that they work is, say you're sitting there and um, you're doing your exam and you come across a question that you just don't know, you're stumped, you can pull out your phone, it's super convenient, you take a photo of the question that you're stumped on, you submit that question, usually you have to pay a fee, a subscription fee to be able to get the answer. And if that question is in the database, it'll just flash up. If it's not in the database, they've got teams of experts that can start working on it. You go on and you come back to that question later and hopefully someone from, this, from these websites has answered that question. You can put in the correct answer and that's about it. This is crazy. So high tech and super organised by the sounds of it. Mario, what are the students telling you about why they're using these websites? Now, this is really interesting. So we spoke to students from uh, across the country and we, in particular, we spoke to international students. International students can be under enormous pressure. They have to pay higher uni fees. Uh, many have taken out loans so that they can pay for their Australian uh, degree. Often uh, they will be working low-paying, uh, sometimes cash jobs, shift work, there's a language barrier, there's a lack of social support, um, they're trying to figure out the Australian system. And so there are a lot of factors driving them to sort of, you know, cut corners. And 
I think it's really important to consider it from an international student's point of view. If you're on here on a visa, you can't afford to fail your degree because you don't want to shell out an extra $5,000. You're working late nights. Your mates might be accessing these websites as, as well. There's pressure on you to actually get through your degree. You know, the temptation is there. And, you know, we, we spoke to one particular student, um, a guy called uh, Ramesh. Ramesh isn't his real name. We're calling him Ramesh because what he admitted to can get him in a lot of trouble. Now, he works an overnight shift uh, at a fast food joint. So he's working, finishes his shift at about 7.30am, but he has to get to a lecture at 9am. And it's just impossible for him as he sees it. It's not just a temptation. You have to do it to pass your exams. You have to do it to pass, you know, certain subjects. Like, mostly all students will, you know, at some point use those websites. Right, so that was Ramesh, an international student who says he uses these online cheating services to pass his assessments. Mario, how many students are using these websites? Do we know? We, we don't know exactly, but all, all we can tell is that it is a lot. There were, in 2020, so just as the pandemic is starting to take hold, there were about 7.3 million hits on a database of about 500 of these websites. And that was just one month. So in the month of May, 7.3 million hits on these cheating websites from Australian students. And that represented about a 50% increase on the same month the previous year. So it went up quite a bit. It has dropped off, to be fair. It's now sitting at about 5.9 million hits in a single month in 2022. Now, students don't often fess up to this stuff. So you don't get a lot of really good numbers on how many students are using these cheating websites. But studies in the past have shown that it's around between 8 and 10%, which is actually quite a lot. And we know that universities are detecting around 1%. So if you're a student, you know, you might run that gauntlet and think, well, there's a pretty small chance of me actually being caught. One really interesting thing that I came across in trying to sort of answer that question is that the students themselves, they don't often consider this cheating. And one interesting uh, phenomenon that we came across was the use of these things called quiz banks. And there's probably a lot of university students listening to this that probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Quiz banks are questions that universities use when they're creating exams or when they're creating assessments. Now, they're not practice questions. They are the actual questions that the university will use in an exam because they tend to recycle questions from, from one year to the next. So if you find a quiz bank and they're freely available online, some of them you have to pay for, but if you find one, you can look up the exact question and the exact answer that you might be facing in an exam. So they're great study aids, but they can also be used as uh, as cheat sheets. Now, students might not necessarily see that as cheating. I mean, we spoke to one student uh, called Yeggs. She was from South Australia. And in her view, they're actually pretty innocent. The intention of us is not we're cheating. It's more like where can I get information from? It's as easy as if you're stuck on the definition of, let's say, a word that you don't understand, what are you going to do? You're not going to just sit there and try to ponder what the word could mean. You'd probably go through a dictionary, you'd probably Google the word. It's no different. All 
really interesting. We've got so many thoughts coming through on this one. Sam from Hobart says, to be honest, this whole situation has been created by universities themselves. I haven't been very comfortable with some of the social distancing and online exam options that COVID brought on and the fact that they want to continue using this system primarily to reduce costs. Ultimately, if they want to stop people cheating, they just need to go back to ordinary old school exams where we sit in a classroom and had a bunch of old codgers watching over us, making sure they were doing the right thing. That's Sam there. Another person says, I used a cheating website to get answers for an assessment for a subject that many of my friends at uni had failed. My tutors and lecturers just weren't providing the support that I needed. And whilst the website was like 50 US dollars for a month's access, it was definitely worth it instead of dealing with the high stress. Got another person saying, I think the use of cheating websites should really be put back on the unis. If I can Google a multiple choice question and the exact same questions and answers come up, that's just laziness. And another person, a different perspective, these websites are crazy good. I'm a high school teacher and all of my kids are using it and it's so hard to pick up. I'm really unsure how we can stop all this. Let's get back to journalist Mario Christodoulou now. Okay, Mario, what's being done to stop these cheating websites? Because obviously authorities know they exist, right? So the, the regulator in this space is a federal government body called the Tertiary Education Quality and Standards Agency. They're known as TEXA. And uh, they have the power, they got the power in 2020 to to block websites. They have to make a federal court in, uh, application. So they go to the federal court and they will apply under certain conditions um, to, to block these websites from being accessed in Australia. Um, now, we know uh, that students can, can get around this uh, using a VPN, um, but even they say that that process is slow. They are monitoring or are aware of more than 500 of these websites that specifically target Australian students. They've managed to block two of them. Now, to be fair to them, they do say that there is more action uh, coming down the track. Um, But this is an area where the websites that allow you to cheat are moving faster than the ability of the regulator, at least at this stage. You know, the people I spoke to who are in this space say that just over the horizon, we're going to see essays being able to be written by AI, essays that would be indistinguishable from an essay that a a human um, would have written. There's a bit of an arms race going on between the universities on on the one hand, and students who want to cheat or want to take a shortcut through their through their degree on the other hand. And those people who work at universities who are monitoring this, this space, what they will say to you is that this is an arms race that universities simply won't win. Students are really smart. Students are really clever at uh, being able to get around university systems, get around website blocks, get around plagiarism uh, testers. And so... Universities, if they're not going to win this, one attitude is is that we should really be having a think about how we teach students, how we evaluate students, what we want graduates coming out of universities to look like and, and, and be able to do. Because, you know, the bottom line is that if you, if, if you can't stop this, this trend, if you can't stop people going online and being able to cheat then there's a big question mark over the quality of the engineers, the nurses, the doctors, all those essential professions that we pump out of universities every year.
Oh, it's so interesting, Mario, and so many complex issues involved in this. I can see that our listeners uh, have a lot to say about this, and it's definitely worth listening to this full story. There's a lot more to it. You can hear the full investigation on the ABC's background briefing. Mario Christodoulou, thanks for coming on Hack. No worries. Thanks for having me. Hack! On Triple J. And yeah, you can find Background Briefing wherever you get your podcasts. If you're ever looking for a deep dive on a big issue, definitely worth subscribing to that one. Lots of messages still pouring in. James in Geelong says you pay for your own university. You soon realise you're getting out what you're putting in. Cheating will soon reveal itself when you finish your degree and get interviews for jobs and can't show you know your information. Hack. We made the connection. We got to the bottom of the Delta variant. These infernal whistles have been going all trip. On Triple J. Yeah, a very cool discovery was made over the weekend. And if you're someone who loves adventure, you're going to love this. A group of explorers has uncovered Australia's deepest cave. Well, the deepest one we know about anyway. It's in southern Tasmania, and it took this group of explorers six months to prepare to get there. Also, they've given it a pretty interesting name. We'll get to that in a minute. Kira Smart was in the group, and she's with us now. Go, Kira. Thanks for coming on Hack. Hi there. Firstly, did you guys know that this cave existed before you came across it? You've been preparing to get there for a few months, so people had an idea that it was there, right? Yeah, so we actually discovered it in January, um, and it's a really big and deep and vertical cave. Um, So we had to have, you know, about 20 trips um, in before we were able to get to the bottom because we had to set ropes the whole way from the top to the bottom. So how deep is it? Um, so it's 401 metres deep, which if you can imagine um, the height of three Sydney Harbour bridges from the top of the arch to the water, oh. three of those heights on top of each other. Wow, that's crazy. To, like, it's just freaking me out thinking that you were going so far down. Um, what did you see when you got there? Like you get to the bottom and you're like, whoa, we're here now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, there's, yeah, there's nothing particularly spectacular at the bottom, but um, <laughs> it was great to make the connection. Um, and we knew we were going to be at the bottom because we were expecting to come out in this very large waterfall into this other cave system. Um, so the final abseil was beside this um, rushing, roaring waterfall, um, and then we landed in this other cave system, and we knew we'd made the connection. Right, so it's connected to another cave system, and this cave that you guys have explored, you've been allowed to name it. What have you called it? Yeah, um, so the way it works in the caving world is if you find a cave, you get to name it. Uh, So this particular cave was discovered by Stephen Fordyce and he decided to call it Delta Variant so that we forever be able to to date the cave and remember the time at which it was discovered. Yeah, we'll definitely not forget Delta Variant. It's something we'd probably like to forget, but hey, that's the aim of this new cave. Maybe it gives it another spin, who knows. Um, What's so significant about this find, Kira? Like, what does it mean in terms of um, you guys explore caves all the time? Does it mean that there's just so much underneath us that we don't know about, that there's so many other cool things that are waiting to be discovered? Yeah, definitely. Um, It's been estimated that about 70% of Tasmania's caves haven't even been discovered yet. But it's it's not that easy to discover a huge cave. Um, So Nigley previously held the record for the deepest cave and it held that for a long time. 
Um, and now hopefully this record holds for a little while, um, at least until someone else finds another cave. And how did you get into this kind of type of adventuring ex- exploration and stuff? Like I imagine it's a lot of preparation you need to do and it's not something that you're recommending people just go out and try themselves. You need to be kind of trained for this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, there's lots of caving clubs all over Australia um, and they can introduce beginners to the sport, which is a really good way to get into it. Um, And then you can pretty much take it wherever you want. If you want to get involved in discovering new caves and the really the challenging aspect of it, which is what this trip sort of um, represents, then, you know, you build up to it over a course of a couple of years and with um, training from other people. And before you know it, you're 400 metres underground. Yeah, oh, I can't even imagine it. It's kind of my worst nightmare, but I'm glad that you love doing it. That's cool. Um, so how long were you down there? Because it took you a while to get there. Um, were you there for a little while or did you have to come back up? Oh, this is a pretty this is a pretty big cave. So we were underground um, in total for more than 14 hours. Oh. We got in at um, 11 a.m. I got out at, after 1 a.m. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, the hour and a half walk up the hill um, to get back to the cars. Yeah, it sounds pretty exhausting. Are you tired now? Are you going to be heading out to more caves over the weekend or are you done? I've discovered Australia's deepest one. We're all good, I think. Yeah, I think the team's going to take a bit of a rest. We've all been caving pretty hard over the last couple of months. Oh, so true. Kira Smart from the Southern Tasmanian Cavaneers. Huge, huge discovery. Literally very, very big. <laughs> Thank you so much for telling us about it. And let us know if you've got another cave that you stumble upon, we'd be keen to know. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. Big thanks to everyone for all of your messages that have come through. Big show on Hack this afternoon. That's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.